course, the obvious difference is that Krishna is God and ordinary babies, despite what their parents sometimes think, are not God. So, so the idea here is that, um, well, Krishna, Krishna actually knows what he's doing. An ordinary baby acts that way because they just haven't developed their intelligence yet. Whereas Krishna knows what he's doing. Krishna's omniscient, yet he's, well, he's acting like a baby. So, um, Krishna, it's explained in the uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, the first verse of the Bhagavatam, that Krishna is Swarat, self-governing. Krishna is the only absolutely autonomous person, the only person who is absolutely free. Everyone else is free to some extent. We, I mean, in a sense, there's a, there's a sense in which our freedom is also complete. Uh, there's a sense in which it's not. We're not free to do anything. We're not free to do the same, exactly the same things that God can do. But at the same time, we can, within our limitations, within our limitations as Jiva souls, we actually make free choices. We actually have complete freedom to choose how we want to deal with the fact that we are Jiva souls. Someone uh, may choose to ignore that fact, to ignore the fact that they are a soul, and say, well, I think I'm just going to act as if I were a body, or allow themselves to be seduced by the, the vanity of the bodily concept of life. It's a, it's a seduction, really. It's, uh, there was once a record album put out by, anyway, this big brother in the holding company back in the 60s, Janis Joplin, is called Cheap Thrills. That's kind of the story of this world, Cheap Thrills. And so if you think about it, there, um, I actually want to get back to this verse. Of, I mean, I, I, I want to talk about this verse, so I may appear to be wandering off as if I'm having a senior theological moment. <laughs> But I hope ultimately it'll all tie in. So, I mean, if we think of the nature of pleasure, pleasure, pleasures are not merely sensations. I mean, or pleasures that are merely sensations are not considered to be very um, worthy. If you think about it, for example, the happiness, the happiness which comes from doing good or from seeing others do good, it's a sense of satisfaction, a deep satisfaction, whereas let's say you just eat some cheap candy or something. It's, uh, it may, well, it, it, it may stimulate the senses in a particular way or give a particular pleasure to the senses, but that pleasure is not accompanied by any type of deep satisfaction. It's a, uh, so if you think of the hierarchy of our own individual existence, the hierarchy which Krishna points out in the Gita, when he says, uh, "Indriyani parani ahur, indriyavya parangmanaha," that they're the senses which are beyond gross matter because they can conduct consciousness, and then beyond the senses, uh, the mind, then buddhi, the power of discernment, and then the soul. So there's this, we have these, this hierarchy of faculties. We don't 
merely have different faculties, we actually have a hierarchy of faculties, some being above others. And uh, all of these, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that asyadishtana mujate, that lust can lodge itself in all these different parts of our existence. In other words, sometimes our senses, we may just have just sort of gross sense desire. Like, I want to see that, I want to hear that. Play that song again or something. And, or you may want to taste something. But then again, there may be lust of the mind, like, like a certain pride or desire to certain mental enjoyment. And there may be intellectual enjoyment. We can become attached to uh, the activities of the intellect and, for example, let's say among scholars or scientists, sometimes they, they experience sort of this uh, pleasure just by seeing like a beautiful equation or a great argument or discovering, finally understanding uh, why certain historical events occurred. Or even see, I mean, even grammarians. I mean, there's all kinds of intellectual pleasures where you just like the beauty of a certain idea or a solution appeals to one. And then ultimately there's the pleasure of the soul. So just, so lust, lust can occur, or maybe the lust isn't the best word here, comma, just like, I mean, you, you all know what Kleenex is. It's actually a brand name, Kleenex, but because it was the, a prominent brand, it means like facial tissues, which is sort of a little more polite than saying nasal tissues. <laughs> or a Xerox. So, so th there's this, uh, there's a tendency in all cultures to, uh, that a word actually refers to a group of things, a class of things, but then the most prominent member of that class, it also means that. For example, the word anna in, in Sanskrit literally means food. It's exactly the same as the Spanish comida, that which is eaten. And so because in Bengal, uh, the thing they eat the most is rice, so therefore in Bengal it comes to mean rice. So that it, that this led to one of the uh, great and most profound philosophical controversies in the history of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which is whether you can say Sharita Vidya Jalani Kadasi. <laughs> this will certainly go down in history alongside other extraordinarily silly religious debates. So, but the word, the word Anna, the word Anna actually means is food, but it comes to mean rice. So in the same way, Kama, Kama simply means desire. And it can even mean, it can even mean spiritual desire because, for example, Krishna is called Gopi Kanta, which is the same word, just means desired Kanta. Krishna is desired by the gopis or, and so on. And there are many names of Krishna with the word Kanta. So it simply means desire, but because in this world the most prominent desire is sex desire, or at least the most intense, and the one that leads most often to crimes of passion and so on, and heartbreak and... Uh, virtual insanity. So, therefore, comma all often refers specifically to sex desire. But, um, so Krishna talks about desire, comma, and it, 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 desire can occur anywhere in our body, in our mind, and in the same way spiritual desires and, spirit, and pleasures. 
So either material or spiritual pleasures can occur at any level in this hierarchy of our existence. And uh, certain pleasures, to use Krishna's language, in uh, chapter 5 or 6 of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about a pleasure or a gain which is buddhi grahyam, literally acceptable to intelligence. So if I'm enjoying something which is simply irrational, in other words, my best intelligence cannot approve of it. Like if I'm really, if I really sit down and just uh, try to be lucid and intelligent and rational, put aside everything else and say, ultimately, is this really a good thing? And so if the answer is no, then that pleasure is not buddhi grayam, to use Krishna's language. It's not really acceptable to our intelligence. It's not, it's not acceptable to our intelligence. So if I enjoy something which is not acceptable to my intelligence, then that means that pleasure uh, is only occurring at the lower level of my existence. It's actually not, I can't experience that pleasure. I can't, uh, so to speak, get into, I can't get into that pleasure. I can't embrace that happiness with my higher faculties because my higher faculties simply can't, with integrity, approve of that pleasure. And so on. So... Uh, therefore, we can objectively rate pleasures. It's not that, it's not it's sort of like this incredibly simplistic and uh, irrational idea that, well, if someone reports to us that I'm happy and someone else reports to us that I'm happy, then, you know, if one person's happiness was, I don't know, murdering innocent people and the other person's happiness was doing good to people, well, since they both use the English word happy, they must be describing the same experience. Which is, uh, I think, well, that's obviously not the case. So that happiness is it's an objective state of consciousness. So that even if someone claims, I am happy, they may be using the word improperly, or they may simply not be experienced enough to know what real happiness is. The fact that someone uses a particular word in a language doesn't mean they have a profound understanding of what that word means or, or the full range of meaning of that word. It's just like, for example, imagine children playing some sport and so one little kid says, I'm really good at this. Well, that's the, the child is speaking that way within a certain context. In a different context, that statement would be meaningless or, meaningless or farcical. So in the same way, the subjective claim that I'm happy or I like this, I enjoy this, uh, may tell us more about the person's psychology than about objective states of happiness. So anyway, Krishna describes... I'm sort of giving this preliminary uh, discussion of happiness and so on because... Uh, here we have a phenomenon where Krishna, Lord Chaitanya, now, to everyone's utter amazement, I'm actually going to tie this into the, today's verse. So, as we know, the world is created in such a way that children uh, give pleasure. 
at least to, I mean, under normal circumstances. That's why, speaking of children, uh, does this one belong to someone? Oh, yeah. Maybe you could sit sort of in the back there and that way you have a little more range. We want to make sure you have a negative experience, early experience of your Hare Krishna temples and you grow up, you'll distance yourself from us. So, if you, if you consider like, I mean, from, from a mundane point of view, children are like, for parents, like the ultimate collectible. As Prabhupada puts it, uh, it's obvious, I mean, people get married and uh, they have a relationship going and they want to have children. Not merely out of, I mean, there are cultures in which people have children just because if you don't, you're considered to be strange or irresponsible or a traitor to your tribe or something. But, but nowadays, or in general, people often have children because they actually want that pleasure. They want the pleasure of raising children. And when they, there's that whole, you know, like you keep score, like, oh my God, the kid just did that. Like the first time the kid burped or the first time the kid rolled over or the first time the child stood up. Or the first child, the, chi the first time the kid said, Mom, there's all these first times. It's like a whole long list of the first time the child did this or that. And uh, it actually gives pleasure to the parents. Not only the parents, I mean, because in general, it's, it's, it's fun to watch kids for, within limits. So <laughs> certain length of time, it's, it's really fun to watch kids and to see them doing things. And so, and so Krishna... Krishna gets into this whole mood. And so I was just thinking philosophically, what is the pleasure? Like you see a little child crawling around or doing these cute little things. Children are like, you know, they're sort of like the essence of cuteness. So what is it? What, what is the happiness that we're actually experiencing when we observe children? And then when we see Krishna do this, as Lord Chaitanya, or as, and of course these pastimes are very similar to Krishna's pastimes is Krishna, where Krishna takes that role of a little child and does all these things, like the first time he did this, the first time he did that, and doing things or, you know, speaking like, when a child says something which actually makes sense, it, it, everyone really gets a kick out of it, because children so often say things that don't make sense. Or when a child shows precocity, and so here Lord Chaitanya himself is doing this. Uh... It's, so do you see what I'm getting at? Like, like what is, why, why does that give you pleasure? If, if you think about it, in fact, if we consider in the context of the great perennial debate between personalists and impersonalists, what is there essentially about personal pleasures? For example, beauty. The fact that someone is very attractive. Uh the most attractive person is Krishna. In Krishna's case, we actually have an absolute reference point for beauty. So, if you see an attractive person and, and it, it gives pleasure, it's attractive. That's the whole principle of opulences. Krishna, that opulences that's, are attractive. So what is that pleasure? Or if you see, for example, justice, if you see someone acting fairly or, or showing compassion, or singing or dancing. If you think of all these, just all the things that people do, all the things that people do and all the qualities that people have, and the great philosophical debate is, 
whether all these personal things, beauty, justice, kindness, relationships, singing, dancing, uh, creative activities, whether all these things ultimately, the pleasure we feel from them is false and somehow it's just it's just a misunderstanding and these things ultimately have no real value or meaning. Or, of course, that's the impersonal view, which is kind of, you think about it, incredibly dark and gloomy and... It's actually, anyway. Whereas the personal idea is that all these aspects of personal life are eternal and ultimately uh, are the very essence of life. The very essence of life is to be a person. And it's sort of like the, irre it's the irreducible essence of life. And that everything else has to be understood in relation to this. So whatever is mechanical in, in, the, in, in, in the world, whether it's the universe as a huge mechanism, or our bodies, or a, I don't know, a sugarcane juice machine, just whatever machine you may talk about, or impersonal energy, just like a radiant energy like, like a fire which just glows or, or earth or water or just all these things ultimately as Krishna says they're my energy so so every physical merely physical or thing or every mere energy every mechanism whether it's the universe or some little machine you have everything which is impersonal is, sub, is, is subordinate to the personal in the sense that it's just an extension of personal creativity So all the gross physical elements are simply an extension of Krishna's own creativity and power. For the machines we build, I mean, it's all teleological in the sense that it all has a purpose. For example, if someone builds, well, I won't talk about better mousetraps here, but um, like when I, flew, when I flew down here to Florida, I, I sat next to some gentleman who was a, owns a little chemical factory somewhere in Florida. And he was talking about how he'd mechanized his whole operation, so he used to have a lot of employees, now he doesn't need many employees, it's just, you know, it's all mech computerized. So, that machine, I mean, the Greek word telos means purpose, and so teleology is the philosophical position, which is our position, that ultimately things exist for a purpose, that it's meaningful to ask the question, why was I born? There's a real answer to that. Not merely how was I born, but why was I born. And the purpose is not merely a purpose you create for yourself. For example, uh, after this class is over, I'm going for breakfast somewhere. I hope all of you have the pleasure of going somewhere for breakfast after this class. So that's a purpose that I accepted or committed myself to, and I'm supposed to give a, at 10 o'clock a answer questions. And if I get a question wrong, I think I'm supposed to be dunked in a barrel of water or something. <laughs> Considering the weather, though, that may actually, I may intentionally answer questions wrong. <laughs> but we, we constantly give ourselves purposes. We constantly give ourselves purposes. And, for example, if I decide for some eccentric reason that, well, I'm not going to do the program today, then it's no longer my purpose. So I can switch on and switch off my purposes. 
but teleology states that no matter what I or you may think, there are certain purposes that exist outside of ourselves. They're objective. They exist beyond me. So that no matter what I choose to believe or not believe, accept or not accept, it's still my purpose. If I, for example, give up the purpose of practicing bhakti yoga, and I say that's no longer a purpose in my life, it actually still is because it exists independent of me and beyond me. That's teleology. So that when you say nature abhors a vacuum, for example, that's, that's actually the case. Now, if you get to machines, like, like that chemical machine or whatever it does, it packs chemicals, uh, it's teleological in the sense it was built for some purpose. So that's an example of how an impersonal thing, a mechanism, is an extension of personal will. It's an extension of purpose. So ultimately, the personal philosophy, personalism, understands that everything that exists, even just gross physical elements, like you know, earth, water, everything actually exists as an extension of person, and that person, I mean personality, is the essence of life. It's the essence of all existence. The entire, all that exists revolves around, is based on personal life and ultimately the personal life of Krishna and then our personal life. So that the pleasure experience, like when Lord Chaitanya either rolls over or stands up or whatever he was doing, um, and if you ask like, like why is that pleasurable? Why is that enjoyable? I mean, it's an interesting question. Why do we actually derive pleasure from that? And Krishna, if you consider Krishna's, if you consider Krishna's, and you can talk about, for example, a child. There's something about a child which is the essence of innocence. Children are, I mean, never mind the karma they gradually manifest as they grow up and give unlimited pleasure to their parents. But children, at least in their childlike state, they are, they're completely innocent. They're innocent, they're helpless, or they're very dependent, and there's a certain purity. And so there's something about seeing the, the development of personal life, of seeing how the powers and the abilities and the activities of a mature person, how they gradually develop. It's like seeing a flower blossoming. There's something very beautiful about seeing a flower blossom. And Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita that bijam, uh, what is that? Um, bijam abhiyam. I, I, I can paraphrase, I forget the exact word order, but Krishna describes himself as the unperishing seed. So whenever you see something flowering or growing or developing fully into what it really is, there, it, it's kind of a miraculous thing. And ultimately, that seed is Krishna. And Krishna says, Mrityu sarvaharas chaham, death I am, <clears throat> or I'm death that takes away everything. But then he says, Udbhavas chabavishatam, and I am the arising of all that comes to be. I am the becoming of all that comes to be. So actually, observing the becoming of whatever comes to be is also seeing Krishna. And the very fact that the very fact that something, especially a living thing, a personal thing, can develop from a simple state and mature and flourish and blossom 
is, uh, is an extraordinary exhibition of Krishna's potency. There's something very beautiful, something very pleasing about it. And ultimately, I mean, Krishna, when Krishna does these things himself, Krishna consciousness, like we always hear that in Vrindavan, people, the residents of Vrindavan forget that, um, that Krishna is God or it's just, it's not so relevant. Like, for example, it's almost like, let's say, if, if, uh, if a man and woman fall in love and the man or the woman, they go out and have the job somewhere, and sometimes they say, well, don't bring your job home. It's like, let's just be together, and I don't want to hear about what we did at the office. So there's a sense in which the residents of Radhavan just don't want to hear that much about what Krishna did at the office when he has to go out as Vishnu and deal with, you know, the very, deal with conditioned souls. So, ultimately, Krishna consciousness means that we fall in love with Krishna, as we know, whoever he is. So, we're, there, there's a type of sadhana bhakti where, out of piety, out of a sense of doing the right thing, we should appreciate Krishna's pastimes because it's the right thing to do. After all, we know philosophically that Krishna is God and that if we were a little more sane, we would really enjoy them. And so, just sort of a sense of being dutiful and righteous that let's talk about Krishna. But gradually, this develops into a stage where you really just like Krishna and you just like him. And you find Krishna's pastimes interesting because they're interesting. They're just... And we realize that it's it's not that it's not that there's a God who then plays as Krishna. It's actually the opposite. Uh, there's actually Krishna who then plays as God. Because Krishna Krishna is actually Krishna. That's that's actually who he is. Because the impersonalist there's like philosophized Vishnu. There's either a direct impersonalism where we deny the eternal reality and preeminence of Krishna as a person or think that uh, maybe there's some god who places Krishna. This is, by the way, is sort of the official Hindu, current official Hindu misunderstanding where there's some generic Ishwara. I saw this on a poster in a Hindu temple where I lectured in Knoxville. Like, what is Hinduism? Big color poster on the wall. And so apparently there's a generic Ishwara, there's a generic God who then manifests sometimes as Krishna. Now this is not hardcore impersonalism because it's not saying that ultimately there's something impersonal. It's saying there is an Ishwara who presumably has at least some personal qualities like creativity, uh, a person capable of forming relationships with souls and so on. So it's not sort of in between personalism and impersonalism is the generic Ishwara thing. And so we should not slip into that or unconsciously kind of think that way that there is a God and then he plays like Krishna. It's sort of the opposite. There's Krishna who, because there's a need, because there's a lot of clueless conditioned souls that need to be enlightened, therefore Krishna establishes religion in the world and agrees to be the God of religion. Okay, you know, when I say three, worship, one, two, three. And then everyone gets to practice being religious. But as we know, this type of religiosity ultimately culminates in just hanging out with Krishna forever. 
in the spiritual world. And, and actually, in the spiritual world, I think, as far as we know, there are no temples. <laughs> there's no religion. There's, no, you don't, there's nothing to join because in the spiritual world, if you want to see Krishna, you just go down the street to his house and walk in. And there's Krishna. So, so Krishna is actually a person. Very shrewd to be an eternal teenager. Of course, as we know, teenagers in this world are a perverted reflection. But Krishna, I mean, even if you think of why Krishna chooses to be eternally 16 or whatever it is, sweet 16, I mean, it's actually ingenious because Krishna chooses to be an age where uh, you're old enough you're old enough to have really like interesting relationships, loving relationships. Like at 16, you're not just, it's not when you're 12, you kind of imitate older people and go through the motions of uh, dating and all that. People who are 16 are actually old enough to have real relationships and, and you know, real loving relationships, but they're not so old that they have to work and, uh, you know what I mean? It, it doesn't, it hasn't gone sour yet. And also, it's interesting that, that Krishna has chosen to be uh, 16 because there's no kids. Like Krishna doesn't have kids in Krishna Loka. In Vaikuntha, as we know, and when Krishna appeared in this world, he had lots of kids. And there's something about a, a loving relationship, you know, the boy-girl thing. And when you have kids, it changes because, you know, your boyfriend becomes daddy and your girlfriend becomes mommy and daddy and mommy aren't always... You know, it's not always so romantic when you're daddy and mommy. It's like, I thought you were supposed to pick up the diapers. <laughs> now you were supposed to pick up the diapers. And... So, I can't help throwing this in. There's a, uh... well, I won't throw it in. So, I, actually, I can't help it. Um, so, Krishna, well, I will throw it in. Like, even if you look at mundane literature, like, say, the novels of Jane Austen, which are considered some of the greatest romantic novels ever written, and they all end with the people, you know, people that fell in love marrying. There's never any kids. In all of her novels, the hero and the heroine, you know, they finally realize they love each other, they go through all this stuff, and then it always ends with this glorious marriage, and that's it. And you never hear about any kids, because it just kind of ends with this perfect romantic love which is not in any way uh, affected by or in, in any way changed by this other very powerful role that now, you know, we're mo a mother and father. It's just pure romantic love. And that's what Krishna chooses to do with his time. He's got a lot of it. So Krishna, being completely independent, that's what he does. <coughs> And it's really beautiful, and so that's Krishna. And he even does his baby stuff. And also, of course, that once you've seen baby Krishna, it's like it's a tough act to follow. And so Krishna plays all these different roles like baby Krishna so that we then get a higher taste and we can appreciate earthly babies, but we don't think they're God because we've actually seen God as this beautiful baby. So... It allows us to be Krishna conscious in every situation in life. Even in the situation where one is taking care of little children and where the parents naturally become very attached to the children, 
one can remember baby Krishna and see one's own child in perspective as quality. In other words, it, it keeps you Krishna-centric so that in every aspect, of our, every aspect of our life we can remain centered on Krishna. So, these are a few points regarding this verse. See, I did get back to the verse. Any questions on these topics? Good. I see that your, philosophy, your enthusiasm for philosophy is equal, equaled by your enthusiasm for breakfast. Yes, back, oh, Shesha. You, hey, Shesha. <laughs> Just saw Shesha at the GVC meeting. We were in ecstasy together at a GVC meeting. Well, actually, attraction is personal. The very, the very, because you think of attraction, it's between at least two things. And so if it's all one, there can't, there can't be attraction. Even if you say, well, there's one supreme thing which is attracted to itself, like even Krishna sometimes sees his reflection in a pond, or a, uh, I guess they didn't have shop windows back then. And amazing people walk by these shop windows and you see them looking at themselves so but even then even that even if you consider let's say self-attraction it still entails or is based upon a notion of oneself as a person even if you're attracted to yourself then it's still because if you weren't a person if you were just some radiant spiritual energy, you couldn't talk about attraction in a personal sense because there would be no person, there would be no identity, there would be no, what would you be attracted to? You would just be glowing forever. I don't get it in personalism. It's like it, it really is hellish. If you think about it, imagine if you had to give up your personal life, your freedom, your freedom to make choices, give up music, dancing, friendship, romantic love, good spiritual, good food, just relationships, doing things, sports, I mean, games, give up everything, and what do you get in return? You get to radiate. <laughs> For all eternity, you get to radiate. It's like, congratulations, we have a winner here. So. <laughs> You can really see how Prabodhananda Saraswati said that Kaivalyam uh, Nadakayate, this impersonal oneness, really is hellish. It actually is hellish. It's, it's, it's hellish. It's like going to hell. To people who have had sort of miserable lives, maybe they want to give up their personal life, but anyone that has really experienced the, uh, the unlimited possibilities and pleasures of, of being a person that just the unlimited potential for pleasure in, in personal relationships and friendships 
even in romantic love, as, you know, as, as imperfect as it may be, it does point to something beyond itself of a similar kind. In other words, romantic love, if you imagine romantic love, which is actually pure, uh, it'd be a great thing. So the problem with romantic love is not romantic love. That's impersonalism. The problem with romantic love is, is, is that when it becomes polluted by hypocrisy. In other words, saying I love you but actually wanting something for oneself. But pure romantic love is actually spiritual. So anyone that's experienced all these things, I mean, why would you give up being a person? It just seems the most perverse, wrong-headed, hellish thing to give up your personal life rather than develop it and, and refine it. Yes, back there, you... Well, attachment basically means pursuing selfish goals, like never mind the world, I just want what I want. And it's, it's something which is not noble. So, some of the, that suffering, if you think I want to stop suffering, that's just, you're just pursuing your own interest. I mean, it's about as noble as someone who, uh, I don't know, you know, the headache can take, you take an aspirin. Well, I don't want to endorse a particular brand here, but you take some form of, what is it, ibuprofen? Iskon Sinyasi is not allowed to endorse commercial brands. <laughs> so let's say you have a headache and you take something for it, it's like what's so noble and deep and spiritual about that? So if you have an emotional, if you have emotional pain, you don't want to be a person, it's like, it just seems like a a simple, selfish impulse. You had a question? The desire is natural, but you cannot give up desire. So it depends on how you, how you use it. Yeah, desire is great. Desire is a great thing. If, it, if you have no desires, you're kind of like, well, you'd probably be infinitely boring. I mean, desires, desire makes you real. It makes you alive. It makes you a person. It's just having good desires, worthy desires. If you had no desires, you'd just be a thing. You'd just be some, like, thing that just, I don't know, cognizes or something. I mean, if you had no desire, why would you, like, look in this direction instead of that direction? Unless your head was just sort of mechanically set to rotate in a certain way, but... If you had no desire, you couldn't be a person because why would you do anything? Why would you not do anything? You just There could be no reason to do or not do anything. So how would you be a person? And even the desire not to have desires, well, it's like never say never. Yes? Uh, 
Well, in the, f the sense of formal activity different from other activities. It is interesting, in other words, like, okay, we go, like, we go to the store, we go to the office, we go to the temple or church. In the spiritual world, everyone is in love with Krishna, and Krishna is just the center of everything. And so the entire spirit... I'm using religion here sort of in the uh, ordinary, modern sense of religion versus spirituality, which is not necessarily... The, I mean, it's sort of a useful distinction. So in the spiritual world, Krishna is everything for everyone. It's not like there's some separate activity which you could call religion. Yes? Well, we're being personal imperfectly. That's why our relationships sometimes are problematic, because we are being personal imperfectly. Selfishness is actually not personal. Selfishness is actually mechanical, because it's like stimulus response. I see that. I want that. I go for that. It's not... <laughs> selfishness is actually impersonal. And so, the ex and so the real cause of impersonalism is selfishness. And the extent to which we are fully personal, we are ourselves. Yes? Can you say something about the babyhood of Krishna in the spiritual world? The of Krishna in the spiritual world. <sighs> okay, I've got to go to my internal Veda base. Um, <laughs> Does Krishna really do that stuff in the spiritual world? Do you have any pundits here? Really? No, 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 no. I'm saying that. Nice try, Prabhu. So, I think didn't like. I know he doesn't like killing demons. That's sort of something that's done down here. As far as Krishna, I re I remember at least my impression is that Krishna is eternally certain age and in this world he goes through these things but you can look it up and tell me well I have something to look forward to now for breakfast a working breakfast yes Yes, but I still am interested to know whether Krishna performs his baby at the halftime there. Uh, I don't think so much to discuss. I just, I just need to see the, the facts, some statement from Shastra, because Krishna can manifest different eternal forms in different places. So, uh, so you let us know, right? But my impression is what I remember hearing is that in the spiritual world, Krishna is eternally a teenager.
Yes. And one thing I want to say, it is so healthy. It's like, oh God, there's no time to go into this now. Maybe I'll just mention it in passing and leave everyone confused and frustrated and <laughs> if not indignant. But, you know, there's a, just very briefly, there's this whole Christian thing. And I'm not talking about Jesus because I think there are significant differences between Jesus and Christianity. But there's this whole Christian thing about how God becomes a human and suffers. I mean, there are other ways to, to show empathy with humanity other than just suffering. And so it's like, you know, for God so loved the world that he killed himself. In, in, because, you know, the son is also true God, true God. And so it's like, I, I think I was very fortunate. I think my parents really loved me very much. And, uh, but I don't think I would have really been inspired if they would have killed themselves for me. Like, just to show you how much we love you. <laughs> so, I think I would have found that really kind of horrific and what, what are you doing? So, I mean, Krishna, remember the same thing that historical Christianity as opposed to the historical figure of Jesus. The, this whole emphasis that God is so wonderful that he actually, God becomes a human and, 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 and goes through what we go through. I mean, here you have Krishna doing that, but in a very positive, upbeat, you know, Krishna way. It's like, like, you know, yo humanity. It's, you know, Krishna comes down and he's playing like a baby. He plays like a, in Vrindavan, you know, he dates heavily. He... <laughs> He becomes a prince. He just does all these really cool human things, but he doesn't have to kill himself. So it's, it's just, it, it, it just shows that even the, the, sort of like the kernel of truth in certain claims made in various traditions, all these things really find their best and purest and most pleasing expression in Krishna. Everything really is there in Krishna consciousness. So, uh, thank you very much. Have a good breakfast. Hare Krishna.